You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before we dive back in, I'm going to give the usual heads up that these episodes may be triggering or upsetting. So listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behavior at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Okay, where we left off in the last episode, PS's Black Sunbeam Rapier car had been identified in Leeds, Manchester and Bradford. In fact, it had been clocked 36 times in Bradford. And before I tell you about what happened when DC Detective Constable Andrew Latchew knocked on PS's door and interviewed him for a fourth time, I need to tell you about an attack on a woman called Anne Rooney. Now, Anne was attacked just before Josephine Whittaker on Friday the 2nd of March 1979, but this attack was not linked until much later. During the evening of Friday the 2nd of March 1979, 22-year-old Anne was walking through the grounds of Horsforth College, where she was a student. Anne was struck three times from behind on the back of her head. The attacker was interrupted by students and he decamped. Fortunately, Anne survived the attack and gave Lee's detective a clear description of the attacker. She said he was a man in his late 20s, approximately 5 feet 10 inches tall. He had dark curly hair and a droopy moustache and a beard. Anne explained that she had seen the man who attacked her sitting in a dark-coloured car beforehand. She later identified that car as a sunbeam rapier. Yes, you heard that right a dark sunbeam rapier. However, this case was never linked because Anne wasn't a prostitute and the team was still working on the basis that he was attacking prostitutes, despite all the evidence to the contrary, and also due to her injuries. She had marks on her skull, but they were a different size to the other attacks. And just to orientate you, Horsforth College was about three miles from the Milgarth Incident Room, where this linked investigative series was being run out of. And so you would have thought this would have been taken very seriously. I mean, again, how many stranger attacks on lone females were there in West Yorkshire, with women being hit over the back of the head by a man of similar description in a car? And the very fact Anne identified the dark car that he was driving as a sunbeam rapier, this again is really quite staggering. Now remember that the dark sunbeam rapier was clocked in multiple red light district areas, including 36 times in Bradford, And it was the very reason DC Andrew Lapchu went to the interview 33-year-old PS at his home address, number 6 Garden Lane, Heaton Bradford, in July 1979. But 
Due to the fact Anne's case was never linked, DC Lapchu knew nothing about the brutal attack on Anne just a few miles away and a few months before when he knocked on PS's front door. It seemed an odd couple. He was a, a lorry driver, she was a teacher. He was very quiet, she was quite vociferous. The thing that struck me more than anything was the uncanny resemblance to the Marilyn Moore photo fit. The victim who survived, there was an uncanny resemblance. I had bad feelings about the man. Um, he had too many uncanny links with what we knew. There was a gap in his teeth. His shoe size fitted the suspect shoe size. Both my colleague and myself, when we left the house, sort of looked at each other and said, we're not happy with this man. There, there was something sinister about him, something weird. And there's always your own particular irrational gut feeling, if you like, uh, about a person. Now, DC Andrew Lapchu was a junior detective at the time, but he went through each question. He asked PS's name. He asked him to confirm and corroborate his date of birth, who he was living with and who he worked for. And he established PS was a lorry driver at one of the companies that came up in the £5 note inquiry. He also thought he looked remarkably like the photo fit from Marilyn Moore's attack. And PS had a gap in his front teeth but no Geordie accent. DC Lapchu asked Sonia to go and get him some water, but she said she'd make some tea. He used that as an excuse so that he could ask PS about prostitutes and whether he used them. PS told him he was recently married, and he said he drove through the red light district for work. He also said he'd been to Sunderland for work, but not on the dates the letters were sent. He also had a Sunbeam Rapier, which he had sold and was driving a Rover Saloon at the time of his interview. Now, having interviewed PS for two hours, DC Lapchu was even more suspicious. He went off and spoke to PS's boss at Clark's, and they told him that he was a model worker. DC Lapchu wrote a report detailing the many odd links PS had to the case, as well as the striking resemblance to Marilyn Moore's photo fit and the gap between his front teeth. He and the other officer he was with discussed arresting him, but they felt they needed more. A previous conviction search revealed he had a conviction for driving without a licence, trying to steal a car and going equipped for theft. DC Lapchu did not get the details about each of these crimes, and so he didn't know that PS was found in possession of a hammer when he was arrested for going equipped for theft in 1969 in Manningham, Bradford, or about the attack on the prostitute three weeks before. Now, as I said before, this is still a major problem right now, present day. Serial perpetrators are not being identified. Questions are not being asked about their histories or the context and the detail of their previous offences that they've committed when they should be. Context is everything. You know, a criminal damage offence can sound minor, but it can be part of a stalking pattern or part of domestic abuse. The same as going equipped for theft. It was really an attempted murder that was interrupted. He had a hammer and was in the bushes of a house and that was in 1969 in Manningham, after being cautioned by police for the stone-in-the-sock attack on the unnamed prostitute. 
What other offences had he committed and when did he really start attacking women? These are questions that I'm going to return to. Now, DC Lapchu submitted his report to Detective Superintendent Dick Holland. Detective Superintendent Holland would later claim in a 2014 interview that he didn't remember the Lapchu report out of the thousands that he saw. I don't specifically remember the Lapchu report. It passed through me along with many, many others, hundreds of thousands of others, and unfortunately, I filed it. However, curiously, this is what he told the True North production team in 2017, some three years later, when he was interviewed for a documentary called The R-Word Hoaxer. Laptoo's report came in along with a great pile of others. Uh, We did enormous pile every day. And I read it and uh, uh, saw that he'd been eliminated on handwriting and... um, accent and therefore I marked it file. So which one was it? In 2014 he said that he didn't remember the Lapchu report. Then three years later he miraculously remembers the report and that PS was eliminated on handwriting and accent alone. Now this is puzzling and contradictory. So if PS was eliminated, as he said in 2017, the next obvious question for me is by whom? Who eliminated PS on handwriting and accent? Now, interestingly here, he's suitably vague about the whom part, and that's a key question for me. But I think we can probably work out who it was, right, through a process of elimination and through his own words. So bear with me a minute, because there are a couple of points that I would like to make before we get into that. So one other point that Detective Superintendent Holland made previously was that he said that there was not one report with all the information about PS on it. Well, that sounds like a fair point to me, on the face of it. However, given his previous contradiction, I'm not inclined to just easily buy into that. And I have to say that DC Lapchu's report did sound somewhat thorough to me, following his two-hour interview with PS and the interview with his boss at Clark's. Okay, so admittedly, DC Lapchu didn't know about the attack on Amruni and the Sunbeam Rapier car, or that PS had now been interviewed four times in total, twice regarding the £5 note inquiry at Clark's, once regarding his Ford Corsair in the red light districts, and the fourth time by DC Peter Smith as a follow-up to ask banking details and to check the tyres on the Ford Corsair. Now, P.S. had sold the Ford Corsair by the time he went back and the tyres had been changed. And D.C. Lapchu didn't know about the context and detail of his previous convictions. And these four things taken together would have lent more weight to what he was saying about P.S. being a potential suspect at this time. But other key details included in the report were P.S. looking like the man who attacked Marilyn Moore and the photo fits she created the gap in P.S.'s front teeth, the fact that he had size 7 shoes, his car being in the red light district 37 plus times, and the fact he was a lorry driver who worked at Clark's. And D.C. Lapchu also had a gut instinct about him. He felt his behaviour was off, that there was something sinister about him, and he felt they needed to investigate and interview him in much more detail and much more thoroughly. 
And that's exactly why he took the time to write the report. And then he personally followed it up with Detective Superintendent Holland. Now, all of that sounds compelling to me. And here's something else I want to add into the mix. DC Lapchu remembered his conversation with Detective Superintendent Holland about PS and his report. When he raised PS with Detective Superintendent Holland, he asked him about PS's accent. And when DC Lapchu told him he was a local man, but he looked like the photo fit in Marilyn Moore's case, Detective Superintendent Holland said, if anyone else raised the photo fit and a different accent, there'd be working traffic for the rest of their careers. And I'll tell you something else. That was a significant threat that Detective Superintendent Holland made, that he would send the next person back to traffic for the rest of their career. Now, a senior officer back then was literally God. Many of them were former military. Many of them were domineering and imposing, and they didn't like their authority being questioned or challenged. Now, some are still like that. But back then, they had the power to do just that, send them back to traffic and on the spot too. Now, that would have made everyone very nervous, and it would have created a fear culture, which is a disaster for this type of investigation when you need everyone working as a team and bringing their A-game. And so we know DC Andrew Lachu would not have eliminated PS. Now, if you think about it logically, why would anyone else eliminate him? PS wasn't raised with anyone else. And given what Detective Superintendent Holland said to DC Lachu, if this were true, and what Detective Superintendent Holland said in two different interviews, well, the most obvious conclusion for me to reach was that Detective Superintendent Holland was the most likely person to eliminate PS and then, as he said, file the report. Now, if you, like me, are thinking that file means, well, it's still accessible to others should PS's name come up, well, that wasn't the case here. More on that later. So now we have potential suspects being eliminated on accents and handwriting alone due to the tunnel vision about the tape and the letters. This was disastrous. Again, it makes no sense based on everything that they knew about the killer being local. And eliminating people on accents alone has always been a big no-no, including back then. Well, you might think that our knowledge is so much more advanced now and sophisticated. Well, yes, it is. But come on, this is a really obvious point. People can put on accents. They can misinterpret accents, and accents alone cannot be trusted, and certainly not in a major inquiry like this. You can't base everything on an accent alone and have all your eggs in one basket and not keep an open mind. This is dangerous and bad practice. And the other thing about this is that New Scotland Yard had advised against it, and yet the senior officers in West Yorkshire Police carried on regardless. Now, this to me speaks of a cavalier approach and a lack of experience as detectives working major crime. And I'm going to come back to this point. So DC Lapchu ignored his gut instinct. He quietened his professional curiosity and didn't ask more questions. He let it go because he was instructed to, or he'd be put back to traffic. As a consequence... It was another missed opportunity to intervene and arrest P.S. and prevent at least three more women from being killed and at least three other women being brutally attacked. 
And that's on Detective Superintendent Holland, Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield and Chief Constable Gregory. The senior officers who blindly pursued the tapes, a man with a Geordie accent and the handwriting, above all the established facts of the case and surviving victims' statements, and eliminating suspects on that criteria alone. And P.S. would be interviewed a sixth time by officers after D.C. Latchew wrote and submitted his report, flagging P.S., and there would be no reference to the Latchew report going forward. It seems to have just disappeared. So what was this filing that Detective Superintendent Holland spoke about? as it didn't seem to have been filed in the main indexing system. When the officers returned to speak with P.S., Sonia was more assertive this time and told them that P.S. was not the R-word, i.e. not the killer. She told police he only went out with her. The officers did think he was strange, but again they accepted Sonia's account. This again should have been pursued far more rigorously. And of course, for a man back in those days... Well, that would have been very strange, particularly given the fact he was a long-distance lorry driver, which meant he was on his own for long periods of time. Common sense thinking and logic seems to have been filed away in this investigation, along with the Latchew report. So why wasn't this information joined up? That was something that would be looked into much later in a report sanctioned by the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and led by Lord Lawrence Byford. More on that in a later episode. Now, I certainly understand that human error can happen. Clerical errors happen. We're all human after all. But this seems to be taking it to a whole new level, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory every single time, but with very serious consequence. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. On September the 1st, 1979, Barbara Leach, a 20-year-old student at Bradford University, had been out with friends at the Manville Arms. The pub was close to where Barbara lived. They finished up around 12.40, and although friends offered her a lift, Barbara waved it off. She wanted to walk. She was attacked and killed close to her home. The killer had hit her over the head and stabbed her eight times. She was reported missing the next day. Here's Barbara's mother, Beryl, to tell you more. The police called that night. Knock at the door and they said, we've found a body. We'd like you to come up to Bradford. So we travelled up in the police car and 
David went in to identify her you didn't, in the you morgue. You didn't want to do that. I was terrified because, I mean, they called him the Yorkshire Ripper. You could imagine. I was going running riot. I couldn't ask my husband and I couldn't speak of it to anyone. And eventually, I, I got my friend. I said, would you ask David? Was she badly hurt? And no, she got scratches on her face, but it, it was mainly in her body that I, I don't know why I didn't want to face. You can hear Beryl's pain and anguish. My goodness, it's so hard to listen to. A grieving mother who was terrified by this killer and what he had done to her daughter, and because of this moniker in particular. As I said at the start, murder is a horrific and haunting business. It tears loved ones apart, and we should focus on the reality of murder rather than memorialising the killers and talking about a murder as if it's entertainment. It's someone's daughter or someone's son, and the real impact of a loved one being brutally murdered is catastrophic, and there's never any closure. I always cringe when I hear professionals say about a family getting closure. That doesn't happen. Not in reality, not in my experience. The incredible, brave and courageous families I've worked with, well, they learn how to live with it. They learn how to exist in a different way. But it's never over. There's never closure. And in this case, each family has had to live with that god-awful moniker still being used and P.S. being celebrated at every turn, even in his death. Back to Barbara. Barbara's body was found by a police officer in the afternoon of Monday the 3rd of September 1979 in a yard by a house. Her body was found under the steps in the corner with carpet and rubbish placed on top of her. She was found slumped in a sitting position. Her jeans had been pulled down and her bra had been pulled up. Professor G believed she was hit over the head from behind with a hammer stabbed and dragged to the place where her body was found. House to house appeals for information and lots of statements were taken, all of which led nowhere. And with the pressure mounting, ACC Oldfield finally decided to pay Tracy Brown a visit. I'll let Tracy tell you what happened. 
My mum got a phone call from George Oldfield, wanting to come and see me to listen to a tape of a Geordie, Geordie man. I listened to the tape and um, he said to me, does it sound like this guy that attacked you? <clears throat> I said no, because it wasn't a Geordie, Geordie guy, you know, it was definitely Yorkshire. And he, and he kept saying, are you sure it wasn't Geordie? I said, yes, I'm sure. I know who I spoke to for those 30 minutes. I said, you know, obviously his voice is imprinted in my me, in me mind. And um, and I just said, that, um, there's no doubt in my mind that it's not, not a Geordie guy. It was a, a Yorkshire man. Definitely, no doubt. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. And so ACC Oldfield chose to ignore what Tracy told him, despite the fact she had spoken with the attacker for 30 minutes and she would have known his accent, whether it were local or not. ACC Oldfield worked the team hard, and he worked just as hard as they did too. They were busy and in the thick of a high-profile investigation. Unfortunately, they were ignoring all the clues and they were busy with all the wrong things. The investigation, the long hours, the pressure and the late night ends finally took their toll on ACC Oldfield. He had a heart attack. He did recover, however, but his time leading this investigation was over. Thank goodness. Meanwhile, the letters had been circulated confidentially to other police forces. One officer analysed the letters, a detective inspector in Northumbria Police called David Zacherson. He was concerned about the language used. He felt it was old-fashioned and twinned with the fact the author had signed off as Jack the R-word. It aroused his suspicion. He looked back at the unsolved murders in London, where at least five women were brutally murdered in Whitechapel in 1888. There were similarities in the letters that were written in the 1888 case, both in style and in content. Police also knew Vera Millward had been a patient in the hospital before she was killed, and the author of the letter had also included this in one of the letters. Police colleagues had been told by ACC Oldfield that this was something only the killer would know. However, Detective Inspector David Zacherson found that this information was in print in the Daily Mail before the letters had been sent to police. Additionally, you'll recall that ACC Oldfield said the letter writer knew about the murder of Joan Harrison in Preston and that had never been made public. Ergo, the letter writer must be the killer. Well, that too wasn't accurate. Joan's murder had in fact been included in a comprehensive article entitled The Preston Connection in the Daily Mirror on Tuesday the 13th of April 1977. This showed that the letter writer did not include information that only the killer would know. He included information that was in the media. And remember, he didn't include Yvonne Pearson's murder when the killer would have known her body was lying hidden for two months. It turned out that Joan's murder was not linked to the series. A man called Christopher Smith later confessed to her rape and murder. He had criminal convictions ranging from assault and theft to sex attacks on women. And so ACC Oldfield had got this horribly wrong too. And again, Barbara's murder was in Bradford in West Yorkshire, 
Yet the investigative efforts remained focused in Sunderland, and the police would continue to use the accent and handwriting to eliminate suspects. And so a memo was sent out to all police forces directing them to eliminate potential suspects if they didn't have a Geordie accent, in spite of New Scotland Yard warning Chief Constable Gregory and ACC Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield against doing this. But they carried on regardless, even after an anonymous phone call came in 12 days after Barbara's murder. Police Constable Keith Mount took the call at the incident room in Northumberland. The male voice at the end of the call had a Geordie accent. Tell him it's a hoax. The tape's a hoax, he said. Police Constable Keith Mount said he knew the voice well when he answered the phone. It was the same voice on the tape. PC Mount said he had been listening to that voice on the tapes on a repeat loop, as had many others in the incident room, most of whom felt the same way. The two linguistic experts who were brought in by police to help, Jack Windsor and Stanley Ellis, knew nothing about this call, however. But they did have grave misgivings about the writer and the speaker on the tape being the killer, and they decided to separately write to ACC Oldfield on the 21st of September 1979 and the 22nd of September 1979, respectively, to make it clear that they thought the letter and the tape was from a hoaxer and that it was not from the killer. They were told in no uncertain terms to keep their opinion confidential and not reveal what they were advising police. And yet, in spite of all of this, Chief Constable Ronald Gregory took a remarkable decision. He decided to launch Project R, a £1 million publicity campaign to catch the killer using the tape and the accent and the handwriting, which again New Scotland Yard advised against doing. And so the same pattern continues to repeat. Chief Constable Gregory ignores the experts called upon due to their experiences and expertise yet again to the detriment of the investigation and the surviving women. They were also ignored and dismissed. What more to say about this other than it's unconscionable? And it led to even more problems. Information came flooding in from the publicity campaign and the incident room floor at Milgarth Police Station had to be reinforced to hold up all the paperwork. They just couldn't cope. And they seemed to miss another BGO, a blinding glimpse of the obvious. After the man with the Geordie accent called the incident room, saying that the tape and the letters were a hoax, the letter writer was never heard from again. Well, that's instructive too. The fact he never wrote again would lead me to believe the man who called to say it was a hoax was telling the truth. PC Keith Mount certainly thought so, and he would know best. And they should have paid attention to him. And of course, there is all the previous information that was known about the attacker, that he was local. That was disregarded. And it was with grave consequence that the police ignored all the advice from experts and continued on the basis that he was a Geordie. This now influenced the public, who were also now convinced he was a Geordie. This was never going to bode well for the investigation. 
Meanwhile, in December 1979, Detective Superintendent Ridgway from Greater Manchester Police had narrowed down the list of names on the £5 note inquiry. After four and a half years, 8,000 people had been whittled down to 241. And P.S., who was an employee at Clark's, was number 76 on that list. Greater Manchester Police asked West Yorkshire Police to check their files on the 241 men. This was now the seventh inquiry about P.S. The incident room reported back to Greater Manchester Police that P.S. was no trace. This is absolutely mind-blowing and baffling. Remember, it was Greater Manchester Police officers who also interviewed P.S. twice as part of the £5 note inquiry in Jean Jordan's case, so they should have had a record of speaking with him twice already. And regarding West Yorkshire Police, how could there be no trace when he had been interviewed six times up until this point and he also had a criminal record? What happened to all the previous paperwork on him? And what about the Latchew report? Where did that end up? In Detective Superintendent Dick Holland's desk drawer? More on this in a later episode. And that's not all. P.S. would be interviewed an eighth time and a ninth time in the first few weeks of 1980. And he was also stopped for speeding and arrested in April 1980 for drink driving in a car. So that's another police contact and another opportunity to arrest P.S. The arresting officer checked in with the incident room and he was told that P.S. had been eliminated from the investigation. I mean... What the... You see, I almost swore there. This time he's been eliminated. How and why and by whom? It's shocking and truly astounding in every way, and I warned you this case would literally blow your mind. That was yet another intervention and prevention opportunity wasted. And I bet P.S., I bet he couldn't believe his luck. To be arrested and for there to be no connection to the murders... He literally had nine lives. Well, more than that, actually. Three months later, on Wednesday the 21st of August 1980, the body of 47-year-old Marguerite Walls was found in Claremont Gardens in Leeds. Marguerite was a civil servant. Before that, she had joined the Women's Royal Army Corps and reached the rank of sergeant. She left after five years, she moved around a little from Northern Ireland to London, Leicester to Pudsey, which was between Leeds and Bradford. Around 10.45pm on Tuesday, the 20th of August, 1980, she left the office in Pudsey to walk the half mile to her house in Farsley. Marguerite had worked late as she was going on holiday the next day. She would never make it. The next day, a couple entered Claremont Gardens and were alarmed to find a pair of women's shoes, a skirt and a bag, and they called the police. The police found Marguerite's body lying face down. She was almost naked. There was a ligature mark around her neck. She had bruised knuckles from defensive wounds, two blows to the head, three fractured ribs. There were no stab wounds. She had defensive wounds, so she clearly fought back. That doesn't surprise me, given her training. 
Due to the fact that she had been strangled, Marguerite's case wasn't believed to be linked to the series. Now, if I told you geographically that the road she was walking along links to Chapeltown, you might reach a different conclusion. Again, MOs change, modus operandi. They change, as I've already highlighted. Offenders do not do exactly the same thing over and over. They can also change because an offender figures out what works best or because they're trying to mislead the police. We know now that this was the latter in this particular case and that P.S. was on his way to Chapeltown that night when Marguerite was unfortunately walking along the road. This appears to me to be an opportunistic attack where he used rope or some kind of ligature he most likely had in his car. One month later, on Wednesday the 24th of September 1980, P.S. attacked another woman, this time a doctor, Dr. Apadua Bandera. She was lucky to survive. I'll tell you more about what happened to Dr. Apadua Bandera next time. This episode has been full of crime scene analysis and investigative decisions, analysing them, trying to understand them and make sense of them, and you probably need some time to download and process. I've had so many moments across this reinvestigation where I've had cause to pause and truly contemplate the ramification of each new discovery and what it means in that context. Perhaps I'll show you around my intelligence cell too, so that you can see all my musings, my hypotheses and analysis on the walls. Should that be of interest to you, you can let me know on social media, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. So I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week for part seven of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written and produced by me, Laura Richards. Sound Engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover Art and Graphics by Chris Raybottom from Syndicate. And the music is by Kilrude. <laughs> 